0: Listener Production.
1: What do you think is the key to raising kids well? Compassion
0: can help you with your parenting because it gives you a chance to reconnect with your kids and bring in that emotional warmth, which is so important.
1: Today on Feed, Play, Love, how we can use compassion in our parenting to raise happy kids. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. Compassion is a quality that most of us would like our children to have. But how does practicing compassion as parents help us raise healthy, happy kids? James Kirby is a clinical psychologist and senior lecturer at the University of Queensland. He's written a book called Choose Compassion Why It Matters and How It Works. He believes that compassion is the antidote to the isolation often found in modern parenting, and that in turn, can help us raise our kids. Hi James, how are you?
0: I'm good, how are you?
1: Good, thank you. In this book you look at a compassionate approach in parenting. What does this mean and what might it look like in practical terms?
0: Tricky question to kick off but uh, I mean it can it can look very different depending on uh, you know how many kids you're looking after. <laughs> I mean one versus four can make it quite tricky. If you're by yourself or if you've got a a partner, uh, that can make it, uh, of course, easier or or more difficult. Um, But at its core, compassion is really trying to tune in to the suffering and being sensitive to any suffering that you, your partner or your kids could be experiencing. And then once tuned into that, trying to take some kind of action, regardless of how small, but just something that tries to alleviate that in some way, you know, try to... And it could be as simple as just a cuddle. For example, it might not remove the hurt that the the person or the child's experiencing, but uh, being comforted like that makes the hurt somewhat easier to sit with. So uh, compassion allows you those opportunities just to become aware and sensitive and then try to respond to those moments in what we would say uh, perhaps more helpful ways.
1: I'm a parent myself and um, thinking of where it might be challenging for other parents to be compassionate is when our children might be upset or suffering over things that might be difficult for us to get our head around, you know, like the time when uh, you don't, I don't know, pull out the right socks or you (laughs) you haven't done something and, and they're terribly distraught by that. I imagine part of the challenge in finding compassion in that situation is in understanding where the suffering's coming from is that, is that a barrier to compassion?
0: Oh, that's a great point you've made. Yes, absolutely. Uh, barriers can be like as soon as you say the words to yourself, I can't understand why. Uh, that's an immediate empathy blocker. Like you've cut off all of that uh, kind of brainstorming or problem solving you might do about trying to work out. I wonder why they're feeling this way or, or what could be going on inside their little head as, as they're having this uh, meltdown. Um, I think... One thing we tend to do is, is put a little bit too much pressure on ourselves as parents at times uh, to come up with an immediate resolution or action uh, to whatever the distress is. Uh, so sometimes uh, the most simplest thing to do uh, when you're having those kinds of moments is just to recognise there's no simple quick fix here uh, and allowing a child to be disappointed uh, in the presence of not uh, their parent yelling at them um, is a much more desirable situation to be in than you know the kids upset, then you start yelling at them to get over it. It's nothing, nothing important. Sometimes we try that at the beginning, you know, just to try to settle them or comfort them or reassure them that it's okay. But the kiddo still, you know, elevates or escalates the the, the loudness, and then other pressures come in. Time, for example, we got to get somewhere, or you're just sick of it, or you can't understand it, and then that's when we can kind of blow it a little bit and, and start yelling. Uh, but knowing that um, someone c- will be accepting it around you when you're experiencing a disappointment, whoever that disappointment is, is really important.
1: I'm just going to play the devil devil's advocate because, honestly, I, I agree with you completely in terms of being compassionate when a child is suffering. But you will definitely come across parents who'd be like, oh, you know, they just have to you know, there's nothing to cry about, just pull your socks up and move on with it. And those people uh, might argue that that is about teaching our children resilience. How would you respond to that?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, there's, be, they'll have a lifetime of opportunities to learn resilience. Um, uh, we have plenty of opportunity <laughs> to experience setback and disappointment and failure in one's life without adding more to it. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing, it's more about how you just said it. So you can say the same thing, right, to a child, mm. but the tone of voice is critical, right? So the tone of voice and how you convey information is so important to how you are experienced in another person's mind. So if you kind of yell at the child or at your child because they're carrying on too much from your point of view, um, that yelling is the emotional memory that is embedded in the child. So when I have disappointment, people are yelling at me, right? And so those, and if that happens a lot, like frequently, all of a sudden, whenever I'm disappointed, I start to feel scared because someone's going to yell at me. Mm. That's it at its worst, right? At its worst, if it's happening a lot, and if it's happening frequently, then you start to have those associations. And so all of a sudden, whenever I feel disappointment, I'm not going to tell anyone because if anyone finds out in the past, the emotional memories has been yelling at, which gets me scared. And when I am scared, I, you know, I avoid or, or run away from. So there's some of the, the pairings that can occur. Now, of course, we're going to lose it and yell at time to time. That's fine. That's just what happens. We're human. Uh, but, you know, it's it's the repairing after it which is really important. So sometimes we do uh, raise our voice when we don't mean to or uh, we get a bit caught up in something. Uh, but then if there's no reconnection after that fact, that's when there can also um, be some some pain and some hurt. So the idea is, yeah, of course, put boundaries down. We're not saying don't put boundaries down, absolutely. But the way you convey that to a child is really important and it's the emotional tone of the voice that just carries so much meaning for the child.
1: What does the research say in terms of the long-term benefits for children who are raised compassionately?
0: Well, I mean, one of the, the most important points there is, you know, beyond a whole host of typical things that we would consider important, for, for long-term uh, flourishing. Um, the emotional warmth from parents in childhood, three decades down the line, will predict the level of compassion in an adult. So that's why I'm kind of um, harping on about uh, the emotional warmth of one's voice when you're speaking to your child, because that'll be the thing that carries a memory uh, for, for their childhood. They can reflect on in your childhood, how did my parents speak to me because how they speak to you so that's referring to tone gives a sense of how they see me or how they view me or how they feel towards me and if there's emotional warmth in there if they can access easily those emotional warm memories uh, not only does it predict their own compassion 30 years down the track but it buffers them from depression um, and anxiety um, down the line as well
1: so As adults, our capacity for compassion is partly based on whether we were treated with compassion when we were kids, how much of our own ability to be compassionate is based on how our parents treated us and how much about life experience, because, you know, you can go through certain situations and develop more empathy for others because you've had a similar experience. So is there a way of predicting our own capacity to be compassionate?
0: Yeah, there are many things that will go into shaping uh, your capacity to find compassion easy. Uh, So often many of us just find naturally extending compassion outwards uh, very, very easy. I mean, it's pretty hard almost to not be compassionate, particularly when a kid comes up and they're hurting or in pain um, or they're crying or whatever. Just there's a, a kind of, that, that occurs and it, this kind of compassionate responding gets gets turned on basically automatically. It's just the, the basic way we interact when, when we see distress. We know infants, for example, when they're crying, we immediately just want to pick the baby up and, and cuddle uh, and soothe uh, use our tone of voice, etc., And uh, we just instinctively want to do that, but also those signals we're sending to the baby, they pick up on and it does help settle them. So we just have this kind of uh, immediate uh, ability to respond and give um, compassion uh, very easily. Um, and we find that too with adults who are really struggling with mental health. So they might be having depression or anxiety, yet even though they're feeling in this uh, terrible way, uh, they're still very good at sending compassion outwards. Uh, what they find quite difficult is directing that compassionate to themselves uh, or receiving compassion from other people. Uh, both of those uh, ways of experiencing compassion are quite difficult um, if you're, you're experiencing, um, say, depression, uh, anxiety or, or anything like that. Um,
1: I would actually well, argue that I think that most people... <laughs> have trouble practising self-compassion, particularly parents, because they can be so hard on themselves in terms of um, addressing their own needs. They're used to putting others first. Mm. Um, do you have advice on how we might practise self-compassion?
0: Yeah, no, compassion directed inwards tends to be the most difficult. Um, and there can be lots of reasons for that. So the first thing is trying to trying to identify for yourself what is it about giving myself compassion I'm worried about. And that will differ for many parents. Uh, Some parents will say, well, you know, um, I'll just become incompetent or I'll become lazy. Um, I won't keep up the same standards. Um, It's being selfish and all these sorts of things. And, of course, these are valid reasons. But um, at the same time, uh, you know, the question then goes, uh, why would compassion um, do that to you? You know, what what is the aim of compassion? Compassion is to address your suffering, right? So if you're able to address your suffering and help you experience less distress or pain, how will that make your standards drop?
1: Uh,
0: How would that make you a lazier parent? Uh, How is that uh, selfish? So you can kind of unpack that for them and get them to come up with what perhaps is beneath that as well. So I guess one of the the fundamental uh, points there is just being clear about what we're meaning by self-compassion. So self-compassion is to try to help you when you're experiencing, uh, you know, pain and distress, and then how you might relate to yourself in that situation. So often what we would say is if if a close friend, you know, was to say this to you, that they're experiencing this difficulty and setback, what would you offer them? What would you say to them? Mm. And often the compassion just comes straight out. You know, I'd say to them, oh, you you know, this is really stressful, but look at what you're doing. You're doing a fantastic job. Uh, Is there anything I can do that can be of help, Um, et cetera? You know, we're immediately on on the front foot in many ways. And then when you ask someone, can you do that, can you offer that same to yourself, that's when you kind of see the resistance of the kind of worried expression on, on someone's face. So it's okay. Okay, what's all that about? What what what's the concern? What's the fear there? And then it's about validating the fear and trying to unpack that, and, and then start to try to do it. Start to get a sense of okay, well, let's see what happens. Let's treat it as somewhat of a little experiment, if you will. Um, I mean, scientifically, what we know is through research is greater levels of self compassion are associated with greater greater motivation, uh, greater um, greater likelihood to uh, uh, try to amend um, mistakes made or moral transgressions made um, and it's particularly good for mental health and social relationships.
1: Mm. So is compassion something that we can consciously teach our children or is it something that they absorb by watching us?
0: Yeah it's a, it, 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 this is a really uh, interesting question. I mean it, it is part of the um, you know, if you're able to bring it into your life, children will copy anything they see, right? Uh, humans are wonderful imitators. We'll imitate everything. We over imitate uh, more so than any other primate. And so if we are to demonstrate compassion in our daily life and our children can see that, that's going to be a wonderful um, teachable or teaching moments for, for children, Um which is really important. So us, firstly, showing it is really great for us to then see it with kids. But equally, we can also talk about being helpful, you know, and what helping might look like. Compassion is a bit of a tricky concept for some kids to, you know, kind of get their heads around and understand. It is even sometimes tricky for adults. So breaking it down, I remember my six-year-old asking me, Dad, what is compassion? I said, well, what do you think it is? And his response was, uh, is it being helpful? And it's like, yes, that's exactly it. So compassion's trying to be helpful when you're seeing someone experiencing some kind of hurt or pain. So distilling it into those kind of more simple terms, helpful or caring or you know, sharing, whatever it might be, can be ways of, uh, of helping bring attention to it and, and try to help kids get a sense of what's a simple, concrete step I can take.
1: In your book, you talk about alloparenting. parenting. What does this term mean?
0: Yeah, allo parenting just means that there are people helping with the parenting uh, beyond um, the primary caregiver, so mum or dad. So typical allo parents would be like grandparents or aunties. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it's just referring to the extended network that could be involved in helping look after the kids.
1: And, I mean, we all have heard the phrase it takes a village to raise a child and most parents today bemoan the fact that we don't seem to have this village anymore. Yeah. Why do you think this has just stopped being something that we feel comfortable relying on or that isn't in use as much as it might have been in the past?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are many factors um, that have influenced uh how often and frequently alloparenting is relied upon. I mean, one of the big ones is um, just you know geographical movability, and so people just live a lot further apart. Um, mm. So there's just that flexibility in movement. You live in other cities. Um, you know, it's, ve- it's very common for for parents and their parents or grandparents to live you know 40 minutes to an hour away, and that makes the you know the regular and easy to access alloparenting, more difficult, more tricky. And then on top of that, a lot of grandparents are still working these days. Um, Mm. So, uh, you know, average age of becoming a grandparent is in early 50s, right? So there's still another 15 odd years of work, (laughs) unfortunately, until retirement for many. And so as a result, you're kind of balancing this combination of work, trying to help out um, with the grandkids as well. Uh, so that, that they're, they're two of the really big factors um, that have impacted, uh, you know, the easy ability to draw upon um, allo parenting. It also, um, there, there can also be difficulty just within friendship groups. I know, um, you know, there are, there are mother groups and play groups that can kind of offer um, that kind of similar sense of being connected and, and having support that you can rely on. Um, But that often takes a lot of work and effort um, to try to facilitate and get going. And uh, that effort, of course, is time. And sometimes these things can just be put on on the back burner because there's so many other things to attend to.
1: So in the ideal world, it wouldn't be so hard to have other people (laughs) helping raise your children. Um, Mm -hmm. As a parent, I know the benefits for me when I have other people helping out, but How does it help our children overall if we had access to that kind of way of raising our kids?
0: Yeah, I mean, there can be multiple good factors about it. Firstly, you know, we all bring some unique interests and unique ways of dealing with things and have hobbies and so on. And so children are exposed to multiple ideas and multiple perspectives. Um, And this is really helpful for them to develop a greater and broader empathy right, because they're starting to see how varied things can be uh, through these different perspectives. And they can also start to see how other uh, adults can also help them when they're upset. I mean, most children search for one person to help uh, calm them down. That's usually mum or dad. Um, and if it's not mum or dad, it's the, the distress doesn't drop so quickly. And so having others around, you can start to see that other people can be really helpful and you can turn to them um, and, and, uh, and they'll be of help. And so part of it is starting to, to show that there are multiple people you can turn to for help. Um, and the other thing is there are just some, in, in, in those not so good situations, um, some children find themselves in, in families where, you know, that they are somewhat neglected and uh, aren't uh, attended to in the way that you'd hoped. And so if they had other adults to go to for that, that can help buffer that that, that problem. And mm. so just say, if you're at home and, and mum has depression, for example, we know that has a big impact, not only on mum, but also on, on the child. But if there is a, another person around another adult figure that really reduces, um, you know, ongoing difficulties for the child. So, you know, there are some parents who really find it hard, mm. um, you know, so we're thinking, you know, those ones who are really finding life challenging, difficult, um, and children in those situations, having other adults out there who can help can make a real difference to their quality of life.
1: You were mentioning there that you have a seven-year-old? Uh, six and a half. Six and a half. Yeah. They'd yeah. probably tell you they were seven, right? <laughs> yeah, I was six, i got a six and
0: a half and a three-year-old. Yeah,
1: yeah. So um, that, especially a three-year-old that's quite young and can be quite challenging... <laughs> How do you try and practice compassion as a parent? Yeah, I mean, and do you ever, and do you ever fall down?
0: Oh, all, all the time, all the time, <laughs> all the time, and then the criticism kicks in. Are oh, you idiot? You've written a book about this. <laughs> <laughs> you should be better. Um, all of the time, and, and, and that's just part of it. I mean, part of it is you're never going to get rid of that. That's there. Um, it just depends how long you want it to run the show for after you come to contact with it. So um, there are a couple of things that, you know, I try to work on, which I think might be of help is, is part of it is, firstly, um, you know, the way I relate to when I have a setback or disappointment because, I mean, parenting is a wonderful terrain um, <laughs> 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 to, to learn what you're incompetent at. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem is whenever I feel like I'm starting to get competent, um, the kids grow. They've matured. All of a sudden they're doing newer things. And I'm like, but I've only just got my head around being able to work with, with you now at this stage and now I'm having to progress again. Um, so very I'm already,
1: inconvenient, like, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> very, very inconvenient. I mean, if they had any idea. I suppose when they're parents they'll have an idea. Um, but no, uh, so f- f- first part is, you know, so coming into contact with those setbacks, you know, um, what tends to happen is if you start to criticize you a lot for yourself for those mistakes what it tends to do is just make you more angry and then what that tends to do is ripple out and then you start to be uh, more stressed and you feel that stress outwards towards the people you're interacting with so um, it's not particularly good for social relationships so part of it is just trying to catch it and then just recognize yeah this was this was crap <laughs> so kind of validating <laughs> that it wasn't ideal um and then and then really and it's different for everyone um it's just trying to connect back to okay you know what am I really hoping what was I really hoping for here you know and, and sometimes that itself just that okay what am I hoping for here just acts as a circuit breaker to kind of slow down uh, take a breath or two which is much easier said than done but then connect back to okay if I was to be helpful here rather than Hurtful or harmful, what could I do if I was to just focus on that? Um, Mm. And sometimes that just leads to, you know, just a very simple hug or or touch or just eye contact with a smile to the kid after the incident or reconnecting. Um, So it's always about trying to reconnect. And so what that will often mean is shifting the tone of my inner voice. So when I feel like I've done something wrong in my parenting, I'll often have this attacking voice tell me, You idiot. you know in this kind of aggressive tone so part of it is shifting out of that tone because that tone plays your body right it Mm -hmm. has a physiological pattern to it which is only hooked in um, to sort of that fight flight kind of mechanisms and so the idea is if I can deliberately and on purpose use a more gentle uh, more calm or um, encouraging tone that has a completely different physiological pattern which then allows me to, to kind of uh, connect again um, and repair or, or try again or turn to my partner for help. you know. So this pattern allows you to seek out help with what it is that you're doing. Um, so uh, it's a connector. The second part is just trying to start your day in a way that facilitates that from the get-go because many parents will often start and they're already behind the eight ball. And so part of it is just when I wake up connecting to this idea of, okay, If I was at my compassionate best today, um, how would I uh, talk to people? How would I feel towards people? How would I be interacting, walking around? Um, And just sort of connecting in on that idea and then starting from that place to commence the day, which usually then involves me turning and um, waking up uh, my child or my partner with a smile and a hug as opposed to, hey, we're late, get going, what's happening (laughs) (laughs) move 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 move, and all of that tends to do is kind of get the stress and urgency going in everyone
1: james thank you so much for your time today
0: oh no worries thanks for having me
1: that's james kirby he's a clinical psychologist and senior lecturer at the university of queensland his book is called choose compassion why it matters and how it works and we'll put links to the book in the notes of this episode I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.